As many of our UNT students face unexpected challenges and expenses related to the coronavirus, the new UNT CARES Fund is here to help them persevere. Gifts made to this special fund will meet short-term needs so our students can continue to have long-term success. Visit one.unt.edu slash untcares to make a gift today. Your generosity will go a long way in helping UNT students stay safe, healthy, and on track to graduate. You're listening to the Ollie at UNT podcast, produced by the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas. This podcast features conversations with UNT faculty, other subject matter experts, and lifelong learners in our community. To learn more about our courses and events, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at olli.unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ali at UNT member, Susan Supak. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ali. I'm speaking with Dr. Michael Gregg, professor of political science and university distinguished teaching professor at UNT. Dr. Gregg was awarded his Ph.D. from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, his M.S. from Florida State University, and his B.A. from the University of Florida. Dr. Gregg teaches international relations to UNT graduate and undergraduate students, as well as being a faculty member for OLLI. His research interests center around international conflict, security and conflict management, and recently... His research has focused on areas of international mediation, peacekeeping, and the onset and termination of civil conflict, topics that appear to be quite relevant in the country and the world today. Welcome, Dr. Gregg. Thank you. It's great to have you here. I have been so excited to talk to you. You are an expert on a very timely topic. Well, thank you for having me. Unfortunately, it is a timely topic. Yeah. I mean, as more people rely more and more on the news they gather from social media and internet news sites. Your topic of expertise is so relevant, and I suspect it is evolving rapidly. You recently gave a very, very interesting series of lectures to OLLI members regarding the cutting-edge advancements and the uses of cyber operations that includes the use of disinformation and the threat it can present to the United States. Now, we hear the terms fake news and disinformation sort of bandied around with the term media bias, but these are very different things, right? Yeah, they really are. Each of them tries to skew information, but but in a very different way. I tend to think about media bias as more of a reflection of the way in which information is covered or presented. Bias from the media may shade and skew how things are presented or color what gets covered and what does not, so what's deemed newsworthy and what is not. Disinformation looks quite different. Their disinformation has a purpose to it. It seeks to disseminate false information as a means of advancing some sort of a strategic objective. And so the, the aim might be to create confusion or uncertainty, take advantage of existing preconceptions by folks within civil society. So I think the key difference between the two is that disinformation is really a concrete effort to make false information seem credible. 
And actually, I think an example that I think about to describe to my students about the distinction was a few years ago, there was a former Russian intelligence agent, Sergei Skripal, who was poisoned in the UK. And so as part of, in the aftermath of that poisoning, when the Russian government was blamed for it by governments in the West, the Russians engaged in an active disinformation campaign where they published on social media a variety of other explanations about someone else must have done it or there's no way to know. And it was, the whole thing was designed to be confusing. Whereas media bias of that same, that same issue, that same topic might be, since this took place in the UK, if you had a conservative British newspaper like the Telegraph reporting on that story, it might have talked about how the Tory government, which was the government in power at the time, how the Tory government handled this case very, very well and was very sort of aggressive in dealing with the Russians. Whereas a more left-leaning newspaper like The Guardian might report on it and be more skeptical in terms of whether the government had gone far enough in terms of its response. So media bias, they're, they're sort of framing things in a particular way for readers, but there's still truth to it, whereas disinformation is really trying to take advantage and promote a false narrative. So that's what we would call cyber operations now? That would be, yeah. I mean, cyber operations is really kind of a broad umbrella term that includes things like disinformation campaigns, as well as other activities like things that we normally think of as closer to cyber warfare. So hacking into the internal systems, computer systems and networks of a military opponent or efforts at cyber theft, those sorts of things, those are part of cyber operations as well. Disinformation is a particular class of them. Focusing on disinformation, what sorts of tools might an adversary use in disinformation? Disinformation is actually a very old phenomenon that actually predates social media. But increasingly, actors rely upon using social media to spread narratives. So tools like Twitter, Facebook, email chains, those are often used. But even you know more traditional tools, like as part of the disinformation campaign that the Russian government engaged in, in the Skripal poisoning, or what we've seen China do in looking to deflect blame for the COVID pandemic, what we saw there was Chinese diplomats actually retweeting stories that suggested that perhaps the pandemic began because of experimentation in the United States. So it really is kind of a broad set of tools that can be used to just spin a narrative to influence how people see events in a way that's favorable for the whatever actor is spreading that information. Well, it was interesting. I noticed in the paper just a couple of days ago, there was an article written by the Washington Post regarding a documentary, and it was a negative documentary toward the crown prince in Saudi Arabia. And apparently, according to this article, they have been trolling to create a false sense of dissatisfaction for the film. And the movie's approval rating has plummeted from 95% to 68%. Is this along the area of what you're just mentioning? That absolutely is, yeah. I mean, disinformation can occur from government to government where a foreign government tries to influence another government, but it can also occur at home. Governments oftentimes use disinformation campaigns like what you're describing in terms of Saudi Arabia as a means to essentially label political opponents as terrorists or as enemies of the people. We oftentimes see that sort of language used. 
but also to strike out of the reputation of their political opponents. Sometimes this will morph into other sorts of activities, like so doxing people, where the idea there is publishing personal information about somebody who might be producing a documentary that opposes a government or somebody who's outspoken against the government, publishing information about them so that your supporters can harass and intimidate those people. Those are all disinformation tools that get used both at home and abroad. So you're saying that countries have dual purposes for use of disinformation. It's not only to affect perhaps something outside of their own boundaries, but also to affect the people within. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and the way to kind of think about how those are similar is what governments want to do both at home and abroad is they want to control the environment in which they operate and do so in ways that they see as beneficial to the achievement of their goals. Some of those goals are domestic goals, so marginalizing political opponents. Others of those goals are in the international system, and they're marginalizing or creating chaos or disruption for your political opponents abroad. Those are really kind of similar sets of goals that disinformation tools are actually valuable means that countries can do this at a relatively low cost. Yeah, it seems a lot easier than boots on the ground or that kind of thing. Absolutely. And in a lot of ways, this is where I think a useful way of thinking about what motivates countries to do this is not only is it cheap, and it certainly is cheap, it's a lot more low cost than the use of military force. But it's also a much more direct way of getting at a foreign adversary. And when I think about this, I often think about the, the Prussian military theorist, Karl von Clausewitz, I talk with my students a lot about. And the central insight that Clausewitz had, even though he was way before social media and the internet and computers, but the central insight that he had was twofold, that war and violence by countries is just another way for countries to get what they want, to accomplish their goals. And that's central to fighting a conflict and to achieving those goals is to really shape the flow of information and really sort of strike out of what he referred to as your adversary's center of gravity. Part of that is the military capabilities of your adversary. But another really important component of that is also your adversary's will to fight. And this is where disinformation can really have an important effect because it can, again, create that chaos or can undermine your adversary's will to fight and effectively make you more effective at combating your adversary just through the use of disinformation than you would otherwise be able to do. And I think a useful way to think about the value of this is if we think back to World War II during the Battle of Britain, when Nazi Germany conducted a, a sustained bombing campaign of British cities. And the idea of the Nazi bombing campaign in the Battle of Britain was to essentially shake the British will to continue to fight, that eventually the British would capitulate in the wake of that bombing. But in fact, it actually had the opposite effect, that it actually served to mobilize and motivate the British to, to not give in. Disinformation is a lot less costly than a sustained bombing campaign. It has the benefit of deniability under many circumstances, and it can try to shake your adversary's will again, at this very, very low cost. So that's what makes it attractive to governments in a lot of ways. Before I heard you speak, I always thought that the purpose of disinformation was to change the opinion of an opponent. But that's not really correct, is it? It can be. Sometimes it can be motivated to change an opinion. But oftentimes, and this is where it varies from actor to actor in the contemporary world, but oftentimes it really is about trying to sow chaos and discord within another actor. 
So the reason why I sort of hedge my bets a little bit here is I think the the Chinese disinformation campaign that we've seen in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, in a lot of ways, I, I do see that as trying to change opinions where the Chinese have tried to essentially distract away from their own problems in terms of their early response to the pandemic and present themselves as kind of a leader in the global response to the pandemic. So, you know, the Chinese government has really highlighted the degree to which China has helped other countries recover from the pandemic. And at the same time, they've again tried to promote this narrative through social media that perhaps the, the virus began in the United States in a bioweapons lab. Whereas Russian disinformation, there I think it's much clearer that it really is about this desire to stoke this sense of chaos and discord within the United States and other Western democracies where it's conducted these campaigns. And the idea here is if they can generate distrust, if they can drive polarization, if they can do all those things, then it weakens a country like the United States in ways that are advantageous to Russia. And I think we've actually seen that in the United States. So it's a lot harder for the U.S. to chart its path forward in terms of dealing with potential external threats while we're sort of torn apart by lots of discord and division at home. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was alarming to hear what you had to say about fabricated organizations and groups designed to do just that, to create chaos like PeaceData.net 2020. Can you describe the methods that they and other groups like them use to achieve their goals? Sure. So this is something that the Russians actually were particularly adept at doing in 2016 and, and really highlights the, the benefits of these sorts of campaigns because, again, these were really low-cost kind of activities. So what we saw the Russians engaging in the IRA, the Internet Research Agency, doing were things like creating fake online personas that look like real Americans or sometimes actually take advantage of actual Americans and get them drawn in on social media and get them to post things on Facebook or to retweet things that maybe those people bought into that help to spread that kind of narrative. So the idea here is that those sorts of activities help to amplify whatever message the Russian government was trying to encourage to stoke that chaos and discord. So one of the tools that the Russians seemed to use back in 2016, and there's no reason to expect that they've moved away from this, was they would create a social media page devoted to something. Uh, among the more famous ones uh, that I recall was they created a Facebook page that was devoted to photos from the Muppets, you know, that we all loved as kids. And what that did was attract a lot of people, a lot of Americans who would like those pages. And then they would continue to publish Muppet photos for a while. And then at some point in time, as they built an audience, then they would shift the focus of that Facebook page and then start using it to promote whatever sort of message that they were trying to actually get out there, whatever sort of political message. Now, obviously, there were probably lots of people that I'm here for the Muppet content and then they bowed out. But there's still lots of other people who might have initially been there for those Muppet photos who then started to see these fake news stories and then start to think, oh, well, actually, this tells me something that I don't already know, or this tells me something that I very much want to believe. And that becomes a vehicle that foreign actors can use to spread this misinformation. 
Wow, that's so psychologically sophisticated. I mean, the Muppets, who doesn't feel secure around the Muppets, right? right. You, start, you start joining a group like that and you think, oh, good, I'm, I'm here among my friends. And then your friends start to have opinions and you might listen to things or think things are true that you might normally not. And, and that's really what it takes advantage of. These sorts of campaigns draw people in establish kind of that trust. And then once they've established that trust, then if people kind of buy into the other information that's then being spread, and then even more importantly, if they then in turn, so if I've, if I've joined the Muppet page, and now I'm seeing a purported news story that says something unfavorable to Hillary Clinton, or that says that democracy is a failure in the United States, and now I start reposting that on my social media pages, now my friends see that. And not only do my friends see it, but now they see it from me. And that might make them more inclined to trust it because now they're seeing something from somebody that they know and like, which is much more beneficial than if the Russian government had the ability to go around to Americans and hand everybody a news story and said, here, believe this. Most people would dismiss that. But doing so through this kind of backdoor way that sort of lulls people into, oh, well, actually, this seems plausible or this seems believable. That's what makes this beneficial. It's so much more insidious than walking up to someone and handing them a pamphlet that they throw in the trash. Absolutely. So they have other methods as well, right? Like pitting one group against another that have very opposing opinions. That's exactly right. Yeah. One of the things that the Russians did in 2016 was that they established uh, Facebook groups for a variety of different types of what were represented as political action groups in the United States. So they would create a Black Lives Matter group, a fake Black Lives Matter group on social media. And then they would create a fake opposition group on social media as well. And then what they would do would be they would actually create a, a rally for each of the groups. And so one of the ones that I, that I recall was there was a Black Lives Matter rally that, if I remember right, was actually called for on a particular date and a particular time by this fake Russian group in Houston. And then what the Russians did was at the exact same period of time on a different social media uh, group that was also a fake one that was opposed to Black Lives Matter, they established a rally at that exact same location. And so the idea was if you could have these two groups that really, really disagreed with one another very, very strongly, if you could have them all meet together in the exact same place at the exact same time, that created that sort of combustible possibility. And that really sort of exacerbates that discord. It wasn't really about changing opinions. It was just about sowing that chaos that the Russians found very beneficial. Chaos would reign then. Yes. Do we have any idea which countries are most involved in disinformation, cyber optic campaigns, and who their targets are? So there are really a wide variety of countries. I mean, I think most Americans are most familiar with Russia because of what happened in 2016. And, and disinformation, again, is, is actually an old tool. The Russians actually have a term for this that predates the Internet, active measures, this idea of weakening an adversary from within. But beyond Russia and, of course, China, as I mentioned before, we saw Iran this year engaged in disinformation activity. So there was a report that was issued by the Justice Department just before the election that Iranian actors were masquerading as a white supremacist group and then sending threatening emails to Democratic voters in several states that they have to recant their vote or something like that. North Korea 
is a country that's heavily involved in cyber operations. To my mind, less so in terms of disinformation, although there's some of that activity, but uh, North Korea has been particularly involved in cyber theft. Probably the most famous example of North Korea was their attack on Sony Pictures Studio a few years back when Sony Pictures was uh, released a Seth Rogen movie that was about the fictional assassination of Kim Jong-un called The Interview. And the North Koreans didn't much like that. And so North Korean operatives hacked into Sony Pictures network and created an enormous amount of chaos, an enormous amount of actual computer damage and released information. The North Koreans also hacked a, in 2016, uh, the central bank of Bangladesh and actually stole millions of dollars as a means of sort of circumventing the sanctions that have been imposed upon it. So those are all good examples. And then if we cast the net a little more widely to cyber warfare in general, countries like the United States and Israel also do these sorts of things. The best example of this was the United States and Israel by most accounts. This has never been officially confirmed by the U.S., but by most accounts, the U.S. and Israel collaborated in a computer warfare attack uh, called Stuxnet on Iran in 2000-2008 which was designed to essentially cause the Iranian nuclear centrifuges that were kind of core, or many of the centrifuges that were core to the Iranian nuclear program to spin out of control, with the idea being that that would set back the Iranian nuclear program. It was actually quite successful. And that's a good example of how these sorts of operations can actually translate into physical harm in the real world, but also you can see the attractiveness. If the U.S. had wanted to derail the Iranian nuclear program, it could have bombed Iran, but that comes with real significant costs. A cyber attack on Iran, like what happened with Stuxnet, was able to accomplish something very, very similar, but at a much lower cost and something that the U.S. and Israel could deny. And then even before social media became so ubiquitous, during the airstrikes that the U.S. conducted against Serbia in 1999, American hackers on the U.S. side actually hacked the Serbian air defense network and made it appear that American bombers were coming from a different direction than from which they were actually coming. So there are lots of different ways in which cyber operations are conducted, but similar sets of goals to advantage yourself strategically in some way, shape, or form. I find this so very interesting. There has been a lot of heavy media coverage during this past election and also the one before it regarding Russia's efforts to undermine the Western elections. As an expert in this topic and in political science, would you agree with these allegations? And beyond the obvious goal of preferring one candidate over another, why would they do that? I do think that there's lots of evidence that Russia was involved in efforts to undermine Western elections. That seems really clear, not only the U.S. elections, but also elections in Western European democracies as well. And in fact, there's some suggestion that the Russians were involved in disinformation activities as part of the Brexit vote, as well as some of the other elections within European Union countries. But I think most of that was really driven less by a desire to act in support of a particular candidate. To the degree to which Russia may have had a candidate preference, I think that tended to be overrided by the Russians seeing it being beneficial to them to just create a sense of havoc and more importantly, uncertainty. Because from the Russian perspective, you know, Vladimir Putin's been in power for a long period of time. And I think in a lot of ways, what 
Putin sees as a direct challenge to his hold on power is any sort of push for democratic reform in Russia. And to the degree to which democracies in the West serve as sort of an illustrative example of how democracy can function, how democracy is desirable, that then creates an opening for challenges to Putin at home. And so I think in a lot of ways, part of what is driving the desire for Russia to sort of stoke this chaos and this uncertainty in Western democracies, one, it helps them strategically because it's a lot harder for the U.S. to mobilize itself and oppose Russia when it's aggressive around the world if there's discord at home. But the other thing is it helps to undermine the democratic example that Russian citizens see in Western democracies. So if the Putin regime can point to the U.S. and say, look, they talk about democracy as being this wonderful thing, and yet look at the chaos, look at the, the political infighting, look at the discord, look at people protesting and rioting in the streets, that's a really valuable tool for a regime like Putin to be able to point to to dissuade their own internal opponents from continuing to challenge the regime. I think the the Rand Corporation came up with a term for this that actually I like a lot. It refers to this as, as Russia's fire hose of falsehood. And essentially the purpose in the way that Rand describes this, the, the think tank Rand describes this, is to essentially convince people that there's no truth that can be known at all, that essentially everybody's a liar, everything is a lie. And then once you believe that, then it becomes really hard for any real sense of any one narrative to take hold. And that's valuable for a regime like Putin's regime in Russia to be able to sort of latch on to and justify its continued hold on power. And it certainly does affect our unity and trust as a nation and our trust in each other. I think that's certainly right. I mean, I don't think we have to look much further than the response to the pandemic in the United States. We would typically think about a grave threat to the well-being of the American people as something that would cause people to rally and come together. We saw this happen after the 9-11 attacks in 2001, where Americans really sort of rallied together across the political spectrum. But because of the discord and the disagreement that's really been stoked by disinformation, it's not exclusively a function of disinformation, but it's been encouraged by it. Because of that, even things like how we're going to respond to the pandemic, whether we're going to wear masks, whether we're going to socially distance, whether we even believe that COVID-19 is a real thing, those are all things that people are disagreeing on in our own political system and disagreeing on really, really strongly, sometimes even violently. And that, again, is that sort of disagreement and that sort of chaos not only undermines us at home in the United States, but it advantages our adversaries abroad. I would assume if a country is going to use this type of strategy, you would really get to know your adversary so you know where you can just sort of stoke the fire, right? You can just stir those coals and get things all lit up and going. That's exactly right. Yeah. You want to learn as much as you can about your potential opponent or your potential target because that allows you to recognize where their weakness is. And that allows you to understand the sorts of things that you can sort of latch onto. So if you understand that, okay, a, a source of division in the United States occurs across racial lines, or you recognize that the lockdowns that have occurred in the, in the midst of the pandemic, you recognize that those are things that are controversial, then as a foreign actor, you can use disinformation to seize upon those sorts of things as a means of, again, 
creating that controversy and that discord amongst actors in the United States. So the more that you kind of empathize and the more that you understand your adversary, the more that you can actually take advantage of their vulnerabilities. So in this sense, it's a lot like what we typically think about as regular military conflict. It's kind of recognizing openings for you to engage your opponent in ways that are beneficial to you. What can the United States do on a national level as a country to counteract these efforts for our international security? And I'm thinking too, I don't know if this is part of your answer, but I'm, I'm thinking too about the United States Cyber Command within the Department of Defense. I'm wondering if this is included to protect us from this kind of activity. Yeah, so I think that is certainly part of it. And I think this is where thinking about the, the similarities and the differences between disinformation campaigns and other types of cyber operations like hacking, things like that becomes important. So things like the U.S. Cyber Command primarily take responsibility for you know, protecting computer networks in the United States. One of the challenges in the United States in terms of dealing with that layer of threats is that traditionally the Cyber Command and other elements of the U.S. government that deal with those dimensions focus on protecting U.S. government networks. So I think one of the things that we're probably going to see moving forward is the need for the U.S. government and industry to better work together with one another. In a lot of ways, I think the U.K., the United Kingdom, is kind of a model for this, where there's been an increasing recognition in the United Kingdom that it just simply isn't enough for the government to protect its own computer networks from foreign threats, but also to play a role in helping to more broadly protect society, including private organizations, against cyber threats. Because a foreign threat that takes down the banking system or that even takes down large segments of e-commerce, for example, that would demonstrably affect the, the well-being and the way of life of Americans. So I think in terms of those sort of cyber operations, I think that's kind of one path. In terms of disinformation, here I think this is more of a combination of things that I think are probably necessary for the government to do. But I also think there are lots of things that we as citizens need to do, that this won't all come from the government. So I think increasingly there needs to be a recognition that disinformation is a national security threat. So I think a lot of smart folks that are thinking about these things have pointed to the need to create some sort of leadership position that draws together experts and on disinformation to help to monitor for these threats. Now in the United States, this is, this is kind of a delicate balancing act because Whereas we want some sort of leadership at the governmental level monitoring against disinformation, we also want to protect free speech. And so we don't want the government to play a censoring role at the same time. And so one of the challenges there will be finding that balance. Um, and this is a place where intelligence agencies can play a role in monitoring and gathering information and helping to communicate findings, not only to, to government officials, but also to the population at large. This is something that we struggled with in the 2016 election when it was pretty clear evidence that the Russians were engaged in disinformation activities in the midst of the election, but there was a real political reticence to share that information widely with the American public. And when it did happen, it occurred late and wasn't perhaps as loud as it needed to be. But I would actually say the place that I actually think that matters the most 
is the place where I think each of us has the most role. And these are things that we as a society can do, because if we recognize that foreign disinformation campaigns take advantage of our own weaknesses, they take advantage of our vulnerabilities in terms of our own disagreements with one another or our lack of knowledge about things, then to the degree to which we can shore those things up, it will make us more resilient against disinformation campaigns. So it's sort of like a vaccination against disinformation. So this would be the place where I try to do this in the undergraduate classes that I teach, but I think more broadly, we need to encourage Americans to increase their civic knowledge. I'm a political scientist, so I get paid to read and talk about politics. So I understand why lots of people aren't interested in politics and choose to not pay a lot of attention to politics. But I think in today's world, we can't really afford that. A lot of disinformation campaigns take advantage of the fact that many of us don't quite know how our government works. We don't quite know some of the much of the dispute we saw in the aftermath of this year's election was really a function of a lack of knowledge about how elections occur in the United States and how ballots are counted in the United States. If we could increase civic knowledge of those sorts of things, I think that would inoculate us to a degree for disinformation sorts of things. I think improving our media literacy, so empowering Americans to be better at recognizing fake things from real things, that's a difficult task, but it is something that we can improve upon. Countries like Sweden have actually engaged in more concerted efforts to try to help their citizens better recognize fake news and disinformation. And then the last one is, I think, the hardest one, but may be the most important one, which is I think that we need to look for steps to increase what I would refer to as civic trust in the United States. That in a lot of ways, the, the disagreements that actors like the Russians have been able to take advantage of occurs because we don't trust, many of us don't trust one another as, as Americans. We live in neighborhoods where we don't oftentimes know our neighbors. Community group membership has declined over the decades. So you know, many of us live in towns where we don't know many of the people in the town in which we live. To the degree to which people are more involved in their local politics and involved in their own local governments and their own local communities, not only will that improve their local communities, but that will actually translate into making us more immune to these disinformation efforts. So if, you, you know, if you're part of a community organization that cleans up parks and it just so happens that somebody you work with there is from a different political party and has a different political ideology that you have, but that's... That's that guy or that woman that you really like and you know that they work hard for your community too, then it becomes a lot harder to see them as an enemy. And that that ability to see a fellow member of your country as an enemy is something that these disinformation campaigns really take advantage of. Now, this is so helpful in understanding the whole global picture and also just getting down to the personal individual level. You know, you speak about individually. I know you had mentioned that one of the tools that's used is to post an inflammatory post on, say, a, a conservative post on a liberal Facebook group or vice versa, okay, just to get people all up in arms. And you know what I think of? right off the bat are some of these forwards that people send in your email. And there's there's no accounting for where this statement comes from or what, I mean, it just seems to be something that is written to get people to feel very emotional in a negative way. 
I think that's certainly the case. Yeah, these things are designed to really appeal to kind of our basic instincts, this sense of the things that make us angry, the things that really sort of deepen a divide between us and our fellow citizens. And a lot of that really is kind of rooted in just basic psychology. Human beings, we have a need to belong. We are sort of primed to see things in an us versus them mentality if we're pushed in the right direction. And I think a lot of these disinformation campaigns take advantage of those sorts of things. And that's why I think about things like community building or enhancing civic knowledge or improving people's media literacy. Each of those would help to undermine that. So if you if you're somebody who is much more media literate, if you receive an email like that, and so let's say there's a particular candidate that you really dislike and you get an email message that says something really inflammatory about that candidate, that candidate has committed some series of crimes. Well, that you know, for many of us, that kind of scratches an itch that we kind of innately have. We want to believe it. Whereas if we, if we learn that, okay, just because I got an email message that said this, what I need to do is I need to go out there and verify, does this come from legitimate news sources? Is this just something I'm reading in an email message from my, my uncle? Or is this something that's kind of widely reported out there? That's the sort of thing that a sense of media literacy can benefit. And then beyond that, most of those sorts of campaigns that we see, whether on social media or spread via email, they really stoke that us versus them kind of mentality. So if you're a Democrat, all Republicans are evil. If you're a Republican, all Democrats are evil. And that's not how democracy works. Democracy doesn't work if that's how we see the partisan divide in the United States. So this sense of civic trust that, okay, people may disagree ideologically and may disagree significantly ideologically, but that does not mean that they are un-American. That does not mean that they hate America. That doesn't mean that they're stupid. I think building those sorts of relationships, I think, is another way to inoculate us against those sorts of things. It's not perfect, but it would go a long way toward doing that. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like a good direction to head into, certainly. We've been talking very much about this as directed more to people on a national level, everyone in the in the community, everyone in the country. But I'm sure this sort of disinformation can be used also to target individuals, perhaps individuals who are being highly effective in creating some sort of situation that an adversary doesn't want to happen or that they want to stop. Can you give us some examples of what might be used? I mean, you, you touched on it a little bit before, earlier in the interview, uh, doxing. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. This is certainly something that actors, whether they're government actors or actors within civil society, will use to try to marginalize their opponents. The idea of doxing is sharing personal information about people as a means to, and by personal information, it could be things like their address, their phone number, their employer. And the idea of sharing that information is then, once that information is out there in the public sphere, then people can use that information to apply pressure on those individuals. So if I'm an outspoken critic of the government and I get doxxed and people now publish where I live, they publish where I work, and now I suddenly have people who are coming to my home and protesting outside my home or who are calling my employer and telling them that I should be fired because I'm saying these things in opposition to the government. 
that's that's a really powerful disincentive from speaking out, not only for the person who gets doxxed, but for somebody who might be thinking about speaking out against their government. And it doesn't even have to be somebody who's speaking out against their own government. Foreign governments can use this against foreign adversaries and foreign opponents. So if you want to promote a particular political candidate or oppose a particular candidate, you could hack their computer networks and then release email messages that were exchanged. And this is what we saw happen in 2016, where we saw emails within the Clinton campaign that were released, and those were embarrassing and undermine the political campaign. Those are all ways in which, you know, very sort of individually level targeted, individually targeted activities can be used again to kind of create this strategic advantage for an actor, whether it's a government or whether it's a, an organization within a state to accomplish their broader goals. This just seems so subtly insidious and since it's coming from within, I can imagine the effectiveness must be so much stronger than a force coming to make you do something. This is so psychologically insidious. It's quite alarming. We really do need to hear these kinds of things about what you're saying, because it does sound like something that we need to be informed about as citizens of the world to know that this type of activity is going on. Yeah, I really think that's true. And I think the insight about it really sort of having a significant effect when it's coming from within is really certainly true. I mean, we we know ourselves the best and people in our own society know one another very well. And so these sorts of tools are not only used between governments toward one another, but they're also used within countries. And so fellow citizens can similarly take advantage of these sorts of things. And again, for a democracy, this really plays a role, a significant role in undermining the effectiveness of democracy. So if, you know, if you speak out against the government or you speak out against a particular political candidate, and then the response of that is not, okay, I disagree with you ideologically, and I'm going to debate you in terms of the argument, but instead the response is, I'm going to contact your employer and try to get you fired, or I'm going to come to your home and harass you and your family when you're trying to leave in the morning that really has a stifling effect on the conduct of basic democracy in a really significant way. Absolutely. In your October Ali lecture, you mentioned your worries about the possibility of distrust and contention coming out of vote counting for the presidential election creating conflict within our country. Wow. You were right on the mark there. I can't claim to, to to be alone there. I think for folks who follow these sorts of things, there was kind of a, a whole set of circumstances that kind of lined up that made it pretty easy to predict that this was likely to happen. And I think this, again, speaks to the importance of civic knowledge and how that the lack of that knowledge can be taken advantage of. So, you know, one of the things that we've seen in the United States in the aftermath of the election was that there are many Americans that think that the election was stolen. And they point to the fact that former President Trump was leading in states like Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, and by fairly handy margins early in the evening. And then as time went by, then the lead evaporated, and then Joe Biden was uh, won those states. And so to somebody who might not know how ballots were counted in those states and might not be aware of laws that were passed by those state legislatures that conditioned how ballots would be counted, 
you might look at those things, particularly if you have folks in the media as well as political candidates saying this is evidence of that the vote was stolen. When in fact, the reason why that occurred and the reason why folks could predict that this was likely to happen, there was even a term for this that some folks were using back in July, which was the idea of what was called the red mirage, which was this sense that because those states had had passed legislation so that made it so that absentee ballots, mail-in ballots, couldn't be counted until the day of the election. So they would essentially be counted last and then would be poured into the, system, into the ballot count later on. Well, because Republicans had been encouraged to vote in person and Democrats were more likely to vote by mail, what that tended to do was that created a situation where the early votes that got counted first tended to skew very heavily Republican. The votes that got counted later tended to skew very heavily Democratic. It wasn't because anybody had cheated. It wasn't because of any sort of malfeasance. It was just a function of how the votes were actually counted. And that was a function of decisions that were made by state legislatures. And if more people were aware of those sorts of things, then people would have been, you might not have liked the outcome of the election, but you would have understood why that would have happened. Very, very interesting. As we close up here, are there any other factors or dangers and in cyber influences that you would like to discuss or make people aware of? I think the one that for folks that are, are really focusing on this, I think the one down the road that people are particularly concerned is the rise of what are called deep fakes. That with the increasing sophistication of computer technology, it's becoming increasingly possible to create video and audio that is fake, but that looks highly realistic, that uses computer algorithms to take video or to take audio and then change the content so that actors are saying and doing things that they're not actually doing. And this is certainly a danger in everyday life, certainly the danger for any of us that, you know, a deep fake could be used against us. But for folks that study international relations, this is a real deep concern because this raises the possibility Imagine a scenario, for example, where somebody creates a deep fake of the president of the United States giving an address that says that the, the economy is in free fall and that collapses stock markets. Or imagine a deep fake of you know, an Israeli prime minister or a Palestinian leader saying something really inflammatory toward the other side that could potentially touch off a conflict. So I think for folks that are looking forward, the, the concern about deep fakes, because the technology to monitor these things and detect these things always lags the technology to produce these sorts of technological products. I think those are the sorts of things that, that people are increasingly worried about moving forward. Certainly something we need to know about. You keep teaching and talking, please. <laughs> and we need to, as you say, bone up on our civics lessons and learn more about that and also the new technology and just learn to double check things and trust each other more. Thank you so much. I feel like this information is just absolutely, absolutely so important. And I cannot thank you enough for joining us to share your expertise and knowledge with us. Thank you so much. This has been Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas with Dr. Michael Gregg. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please go back and listen to our previous interviews, which you can find on our website, olli.unt.edu slash podcast, or by searching for the Ollie at UNT podcast in your favorite podcast app. 
While you're in the app, don't forget to subscribe and give us a rating. We also encourage you to share our podcast with your family and friends. Join us again next week for another episode.